Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 35, The Ruin. Bridge walked slowly down the lockside, staring at its waves and listening to their lapping on the rocks. She felt weary and sad. She'd made the walk from her house at Stronshire to Dunderarve so many times, almost beyond count. The clan gatherings, celebrations, commiserations, weddings, funerals, baptisms, blessings, for the annual games and for dancing, to meet and catch the news, to gossip and love. The castle had always stood at the centre of her life, but now it offered shelter no longer. No one knew how the fires had started, but both the castle and the gaming operation had been badly damaged. Kirsty disappeared too, so no one knew how to rebuild, even if they fell up to starting. She could see groups of Campbell clansmen standing around idly watching the McNuchtons who had turned out in force to try and clear the area and see what could be salvaged. She saw Fiona and Mara helping to lift burnt timbers and charred furniture from the outbuildings. It didn't make any sense to her. Why had the Campbells done this? Why had McCallan Moore plunged so precipitously into such dangerous waters? He had no need of the little that Clan Necton had. He might admire Glenshira and be keen to secure a powerful income stream like their gaming business. But in the great scheme of things, to a magnet of his power and influence, it was all small potatoes. After all, hadn't they lived side by side with the Campbells for many, many hundreds of years? In days when relations were far worse than they've been today. Yes, Duncan Tarpey had baited McCallan Moore from time to time, needling him over some pointless matter, just for pleasure. But that was one of the few joys that any small clan could expect. Like a flea troubling an elephant, it was beneath the dignity of the elephant to react. Even if McCallan Moore had wanted to get rid of his pestilential neighbours, why did he burn down the castle and the gaming operation? They were worth far more to him intact, surely. Breach turned all these thoughts over in her mind, searching for the answers which didn't come. She went down the corridor to the courtyard of the fountain. The black tower was still there in its pool, although the water had ceased flowing from its crenulations. It was quiet and forlorn, but still standing, and that gave us some heart. The entranceway into the castle was a forbidding, gaping abscess blackened with smoke. There were a pair of candles on the door to deter any looters. Wandering to the back of the courtyard, she looked up to see the extent of the damage. Fortunately, the fireboat had got there in time to prevent the castle's total destruction. The damage was extensive, but seemed to have been limited to the wing where the Red Banner Hall had stood. Here the upper stories had gone, and the roof had collapsed, leaving a jagged line of roof tiles to indicate where the timbers had stood true. The water from the fireboat would also have done its worst, and she imagined the cellars must be knee-deep in seawater. All that wine Dunk had collected over the years, almost certainly ruined. He had loved his wine. She walked back into the passage to the outer ward, where she bumped into Ian the Rat. He was nursing a black eye and a succession of bruises down the right-hand side of his face. He broke into a grin when he saw her, which he immediately regretted, wincing and flinching as if to shrug away the pain of his injuries. Bridge put her hand on his shoulder, but even that made him shrink from her touch. He had clearly taken the pasting. They wandered over to one of the overturned picnic tables and, having righted it, sat down to chat. "'What in God's name went on here?' Bridge asked. "'It just doesn't make any sense.' Why would McCallan Moore have Alexandra, Ewan, killed and burned the castle down? I could understand him wanting to rough things up a bit, to teach Alexandra a lesson at the beginning of his chiefship. But as for all the rest of this destruction, it just isn't logical. 
Ian nodded, rubbing his aching jaw. It seemed to get out of control very quickly. When they first arrived, we all backed right off. It was clear they meant business. They were carrying rifles and semis. And when was the last time that happened between clans? A few brave lads had a go, but were taken out pretty quickly. In any case, most of us were too smashed to put up too much resistance. Which is why what happened up there, he nodded towards the black hole of the hall, just doesn't make any sense. I don't believe this bullshit that Alexander cut Archie Campbell's throat like that. I mean, from across the table, while sitting down? Do me a favour. Archie Campbell was the finest swordsman in Argyle in living memory. He was a fucking wizard with that sword. He could turn me into sashimi any day. So don't tell me he just let Alexander lean over the table and cut him from ear to ear. Anyways, that's not Alexander's style. He was a tough motherfucker. Much too tough to panic in the face of that blonde cunt Arbrechtnish. And another thing, since when did you ever see either Arbrechtnish or Archie carrying a gun? Taking one to a parley? It flies in the face of almost every tenet of canon law. What happens now? said Bridge. I mean, do we have to elect another chief or what? Who's going to oversee the process now that Ewan is dead? Maybe McCallum Moore's going to try and subsume us into Clan Campbell. This would be the perfect opportunity. Yeah, but when was the last time the Corlea allowed that to happen? All these little clans that sit on their fat asses would be petrified that they'd be next. The whole Republic could disintegrate. No, Corlea wouldn't allow that to happen lightly. That doesn't mean that McCallum Moore will just allow us to go our own sweet way. My guess is he'll let the dust settle and put his own appointee in the Red Banner Hall. And I don't see there's much we can do about it. What about Kirsty? Where's she? Have you seen her since last night? No, Ian replied. I haven't. Or any of the Elrig lot, for that matter. I saw them leaving during the party, just before it all kicked off. God knows where they are now. Rather than sitting around on our asses, why don't you go and start asking that lot by the uplink, and I'll see what I can get out of those Campbells on the door. Patrick Campbell's married to my sister's brother-in-law. He'll tell me anything he knows. We'll meet back here in an hour. Breach turned and left the castle ward looking for Fiona and Mara. They'd be a good place to start. An hour later, she was back at the table, casually cleaning the tips of her nails with her skin do while she waited for Ian. When he arrived, he brought Jamie with him. Jamie was still limping and clearly suffering from his wound, choosing to stand rather than sit. Nonetheless, he was doughty as ever, his peat spade of a beard almost visibly bristling with indignation over the events of the previous day. What did you find out, Breach asked. Anything of use? Hmm, well let's just say this story is getting fishier by the hour. Patrick Campbell told me that several of his men were killed last night in Clacken, pursuing some fugitives who sound very much like our Elric friends. Apparently they fled over Benbuya and were making for the other side of the Fyne to escape. Seems like they got away, but not before leaving a trail of dead. The Campbells are hopping mad and looking for revenge. Doesn't sound very likely, Jamie interjected. I mean, Nin and Charlie can certainly handle themselves, but killing left and right is not their style. Breach nodded, adding, I agree. Can't imagine them doing such a thing. I also heard something interesting from Fiona, you know, Malcolm's widow who lived up at Clacken. She said that she saw a boat drop a team of men on the shore and that these same men ambushed one of the Campbell cats, killing the occupants and driving off in the vehicle. Later she saw that cat return and unload the same team, plus a woman, possibly Kirsty, she couldn't be sure, into the boat which then disappeared down the lock. 
There's something very strange going on, right enough, muttered Jamie. The question is what, and what can we do about it? But each thought for a moment. I think we need to talk to the beaten. He was the last man out of the castle alive, and he was the one that saved our Brecknish. If anyone knows anything, it'll be him. Aye, well that's his maybe, but he's in the infirmary in Inverary, being treated. One of us will have to sneak down there and try and get to him. I don't imagine it's going to be easy. I'll go, Bridge said immediately. I've got a much better chance being allowed through than you two vagabonds. Also, I've got an old school friend who's a nurse in the infirmary. She can probably help me. They both nodded their agreement. Jamie was not going to be much use due to his wound, and Ian did not have the kind of face that lent itself easily to hospital visits. There was not a moment to lose, and having kissed them both on each cheek, Bridge left the castle ward for Inverary. Chapter 36. The Infirmary. McCallum Moore stood over the bed lost in thought. He had one arm wrapped around himself and the other clutched to his chin. His eyes were staring down at the pale, youthful face of his cousin, Niall Campbell of Ardbrechnish. The usual bloom and vigour of his countenance had been replaced with a grey and deathly pallor. His eyes were closed, his long blonde hair was gathered beneath a hospital cap. There was a large dressing in the centre of his chest, pinned by strip upon strip of medical tape. His right hand lay on the sheet, again copiously bound in bandages and dressings, with the added drama of drips and tubes linked to various machines which pinged and squeaked their opinion of his condition. McCallum Moore was no stranger to death or injury. How could he be? But there was something about that moment which upset and disturbed him. He could feel that something was awry, but he could not put his finger on it. He knew his cousin well enough. He had watched him grow from a gurgling babe in arms to a cheeky lad and now to occasionally pompous but generally diligent Dunyawassel. If there was one thing his cousin knew better than most, it was swordplay. He had been raised in the dojos and sword yards of Inverary, not to mention his travels to learn from further-flung clans and countries. In all the time that he had known him, he had barely known our Brecknish to suffer more than a cut or a few bruises. He did not understand how he and Archie could have lost control of that room and ended up in a room full of dead people. It had never been his intention to do more than give Alexander McNachton a bit of a scare, teach him who was boss. After all, he had been away from the Republic so long he may have forgotten who was the Duke of Argyle and the Warden of the West. Yes, that old fox lament had poured some poison in his ear about Duncan Tarpey's cheek and encouraged him to assert his authority. But it had seemed a good moment, with the power vacuum left by the dead chief and that incident in the Irish Sea. Better that he did it than allow Lament or one of the other vultures that had been circling Duncan's prone body for months. He had no interest in trying to destroy the McNachtons. What did they have that he wanted? Of course the money from the gaming operation would be useful, but he knew that he'd need them to run it. Far better to let them have it and just extract a tithe from Alexander. He could then have taken a few scalps to parade before the Collier, so that the kingdom could be shown that justice had been served. Everyone would have been happy. Alexander was a sensible man. He would have seen the value in complying. The slaying of Archie, his friend, his Kuremor, and his personal bodyguard was distressing. Slaughtered like a sheep in the fold. If he actually believed that Ewan or Alexander had done it, then it might make sense. But he had fought with Archie countless times, both in the sword yard and in the field. This was a man who had shrugged off a thousand such attempts in the past. However good Alexander had been, McCallum Moore did not believe that he was a match for Archie in that kind of situation. 
It was a puzzle indeed. Leaving aside the human cost for a moment, he also considered the political price he was paying. Suddenly he had all the small clans in the Collier baying for his blood, saying that he had exceeded his authority, calling for sanctions. While individually they were not much to worry about, collectively, like a school of piranhas, they could tear him apart. He was already wary of his visit to Oban next week, answering a summons from Speaker Urquhart, the little twerp. If it wasn't for Lamont's little plan, he should be worried. Sighing deeply, he turned to leave. As he reached for the door handle, the nurse entered with a clipboard and a harried expression. He tried to ask about Niall's condition, but she cut him off, stating firmly that she did not care who he was, but he needed to leave her patient in peace to recover. She would only tell him that Arbrechtnisch had not regained consciousness since being brought to the infirmary. He was still in a critical condition and was in a coma principally due to smoke inhalation, but the loss of blood had not helped either. Given his weak and feeble condition, there was no guarantee when, or even if, he would ever regain consciousness. The nurse encouraged him to be patient. Despite being frustrated not being able to get Arbrechtnisch to answer his questions, McCallum Moore nodded his thanks, promising to return the next day. Chapter 37. Loose Ends. The grating buzz of his mobile dragged John Lamont's attention away from the double screen on his desk, where he'd been reading news of the Dundarav incident in The Raven. It was the usual mix of half-truths and speculations, sprinkled with a few facts to leaven it and give credibility to the rest. He noted with pleasure some of the vitriolic comments from Tam Matheson, Dougald McDougall, excoriating McAllen Moore for overreaching his commission. A trim smile on his lips broadened further when he picked up the phone to hear McAllen Moore's gruff tones coming down the line. Lament. He always knew that McAllen Moore was angry when he addressed him by his surname, like some naughty schoolboy. I want to talk to you about Dundarav and the McNachtons. There's something very fishy going on. The smile vanished instantly from Lamont's face and he focused his concentration on the voice coming down the line. I've just come back from the Inverary Infirmary, where one of my top Dunyawassel is lying in intensive care, having nearly been murdered during the Dundarav operation. Not only that, but my Curry Moore, Archie Campbell, has been killed, along with Alexander McNachton and his Shenachy, and half the castle being burned down. The Republic is in uproar, and I've been summoned to the Corollier to explain myself. And yet, the strange thing is, I had nothing to do with any of that. I sent my men to shake Alexander up a bit and extract a bit of retribution for the patrol boat, as we discussed. But how did everyone end up dead? And who set the castle on fire? None of my men did that, I have been assured. John Lamont had to stop himself giggling out loud at that. Yes, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? He commiserated down the phone. And did you read the bile from old Tom Matheson in The Raven? Honestly, some people have no gratitude, do they? Think of everything you've done for those Mathesons over the years. For those McDougals, too. I mean, the temerity of it. Don't they know their place? He had to stop himself from laying it on too thick, but he was enjoying stirring the pot. This is what he loved more than anything. McCallan Moore fulminated for several minutes, swearing and raging at the impudence and ingratitude of the lesser clans, before John cut across him, judging that the moment was right to ask, So, do tell me how your man is. Is he conscious? Has he been able to tell you what happened? What? Oh, you mean McArbrechnish? No, he's in a coma, but could come out of it at any time, and when he does, I'm going to find out what happened in that room. Look, it would also be great if we could meet the night before the Collier meeting so I could talk you through my answers to the inquiry. You know how much I value your support. Why don't I take you for dinner at the Soused Herring? 
Shall we say 8pm? Lament agreed readily, and McCallum Moore rang off, leaving him dizzy with the opportunities that were opening up. He was also relishing the thrill of this close relationship. McCallum Moore's needy reliance on him was a new and welcome development. The only grit in his oyster was that damned Arbrechtnisch. How could Alan Stewart have been so casual as to leave him alive? Most unlike him. Nothing that couldn't be rectified, though, although he'd better be swift. The last thing he needed was for that little bird to spring back to life and start singing. Pressing the intercom, he asked his assistant to fetch him Alan Stewart and to be quick about it. Chapter 38. Visiting Hours. It wasn't until the evening that Breach slid in through the goods entrance round the back of the infirmary. She'd texted her old friend, Claire Campbell, who worked there as a nurse, and she'd promised to help get her to the beaten. She hovered by the back door until Claire came with a spare white coat over her arm. So as not to attract unnecessary attention, Breach took off her sword and tucked it behind a parlour palm in the corridor, before pulling on the coat and pinning up her hair in an officious manner, plunging a pencil through it for good measure. With a battered folder in her arms and a hassled expression pinned to her face, she looked every inch the plausible nurse. She followed Claire through the building to take a lift to the life support units on the fifth floor. As they left the lift, they walked down a long corridor, coolly passing two guards outside Arbrechtnisch's door before they got to Archie's room. They knocked quietly on the door before entering to find the beaten sitting up in bed. Claire didn't stay as she had to get back to her rounds, but promised to look in later. It took Archie a few moments to recognise Bridge, when he finally realised his broad smile said it all. Ah, oh, what a welcome sight after all these Campbells. How are you? How's everything at Dunderav? The last thing I remember was that the poor old place was on fire. Yes, it's not looking its best at the moment, Bridge sighed, and there's fair chaos everywhere else too. Not only is the castle half destroyed, but Alexander and Ewan are dead and the whole gaming operation was burned down. Kirsty's disappeared. As you were the last inside the castle, we were hoping you might be able to tell us what had happened. Archie frowned. It was hard to tell what had happened in the castle, if I'm honest. I was barely in the Red Banner Hall for more than a few seconds, what with the heat and smoke. I do remember seeing two bodies on the far side of the room, presumably Ewan and Alexander. They must have both been dead already. That big Campbell was lying by the door with his throat cut. I grabbed the only living thing I could reach, which was our Brecknish. What has happened to him, by the way? He was still just about alive when I got him. I think he's still alive but in a coma. They have him in the room next door. Claire didn't seem to know whether he will ever recover. I guess he's the one we need to speak to, the one that will have the answers if there are any. Is there anything I can get you to help speed your recovery? No, they're looking after me pretty well. I don't imagine they'll keep me here too long, just a few days while they clear the smoke from my lungs. To be honest, they've been pretty appreciative. I did save one of their own, after all. Breach and Archie chatted for a while until he seemed to tire. It was getting late. She should really be heading home. She also didn't want to be caught in Archie's room. There was no saying what the camels would do in the current febrile environment. She leant over and kissed Archie farewell on both cheeks. Then she straightened her white coat, checked her appearance in the mirror. Satisfied, she picked up the folders and left the room, closing the door behind her. The long corridor was now empty, its lino flooring stretching away, littered with the occasional trolley or chair, but there were no people and certainly no guards. It was a little odd, given the two burly guards that had previously been stood outside Niall's room. Bridge set off towards the stairwell, stopping to have a quick peek through the window of Niall's room to check he was doing okay. 
She had no axe to grind with him, even if he could be a pompous prick from time to time. She peered through the glass in the door and saw a black masked figure standing over Niall's body holding a syringe up to the light. She instantly knew that was no doctor and before she could stop herself burst into the room shouting. The black clad figure turned, dropping the syringe on the bed and reaching for the sword strapped to his back. Breed frantically clutched to the thin air behind her own head, realising too late that her blade was still carefully tucked behind the parlour palm downstairs. She retreated into the far corner of the room, shouting and swearing as the figure rounded the bed and advanced on her. She grabbed a chair, holding it out to try and keep her attacker at bay. The first swipe of his sword chopped off two of its legs, and the second splintered the seat in half, reducing her shield to useless matchwood. She was paralysed with fear, unable to move, watching helplessly as the sword was raised for a third and final time. At that instant, the door burst inwards, knocking her attacker off his feet. The two Campbells that had previously been guarding the room tumbled through the door, dirks drawn. The black-clad assailant swiftly regained his balance and turned his attention from Breach to this new threat. The blade of his sword moved in a shadowy blur. Whistling through the air, he brought it down across the body of the first of the Campbells. The room rang to the clash of metal as his edge was caught on the blade of the Campbell's dirk. A skilled parry in the circumstances. But without a pause, the attacker compassed his sword around the smaller blade and with a backhanded sweep, hacked deeply into the Campbell's lower leg, nearly hewing it through above the ankle. As the first Campbell fell backwards with a scream, his companion pressed home his attack. The man in black had no time to raise his sword and instead caught the slash of the Campbell's dirk on the elbow of his sword arm, grunting with pain as he forcefully pushed the blade backwards, pinning it across the Campbell's chest. Simultaneously, and with the speed and accuracy of a striking viper, he used his left hand to punch his ski and do into the Campbell's right eye socket, killing him instantly. A dirk clattered across the floor towards Breached. She grabbed it. The handle was slippery with blood and she briefly struggled to get a firm grip. Just as the attacker finished his demolition of the second guard, she was able to grip it well enough to slash at the back of his left ankle, severing his Achilles tendon. Yelling in pain and surprise, he turned on her, smashed her with the basket hilt of his sword, knocking her across the room and spinning the dirt from her hand. She lay semi-conscious on the floor. The looming black figure zoomed in and out of focus as her eyes struggled to adjust after the blow. The attacker raised his sword to dispatch her when a ghostly pale apparition trailing cables and tubes rose from the bed behind him. Niall Campbell of Ardbrechnish stabbed the syringe into her assailant's neck and depressed the plunger before collapsing backwards out of sight. The man in black scrabbled desperately at the needle, pulling it free before falling to the ground, writhing like a decapitated snake. Without pausing for thought, Breach kicked the sword out of his hand and plunged her skin Achslech repeatedly into his chest. At last he was still. She lay prone across his body, exhausted. After a few moments she raised her eyes to survey the room. The Campbell with the injured leg needed help badly. Staggering to her feet, she pulled the emergency cord before sinking down on the bed and looking across at Niall. His eyes were wide open now, and despite the tubes up his nose, he managed a weak smile while he brought his two hands together in silent applause. Chapter 39. The Meeting The warm water of the shower felt good as it massaged and cleansed her body, washing away the blood of her attacker and her defenders. She wished that she could stay in the shower's warm jets, luxuriating in their wet pummeling. 
Reluctantly, she turned the chrome lever to stop the flow and return to the real world. The infirmary had found her a spare room to wash and change in. Ali from Khan's Highland Supplies had been round to drop off some fresh clothes, all charged McCallan Moore's account. She gratefully pulled them on, glad to be free of the cold, congealed blood that was soaked through her own. She pulled a hospital comb through her long blonde hair, wincing as its tightly packed teeth yanked and tugged at the many knots. Finally satisfied, she tied it back in a ponytail and dared to look in a mirror. There was a knock at the door and an orderly came in with a tray of tea and biscuits. Breach noted there were two cups. As if to answer the question that was slowly forming in her mind, the door swung open and McCallan Moore entered. He was wrapped up in a great kilt of fine Campbell tartan, so dark it was almost black, with a claymore on one hip and a dirk on the other. He looked imposing, handsome but intimidating. She didn't know what to do. Should she run, get away from this man who just ordered the killing of her chief and assaulted her friends? Could she reach her skin aslach? Wouldn't that be sweet revenge? But she was no Kirsty. She was also exhausted from the earlier fight. He would be too strong for her. Instead, she resolved to be patient to see if another, better opportunity might arise. He motioned for her to sit, and she perched on the edge of the bed, thinking about what she could or should say. He shook her hand, smiling warmly and thanking her for her bravery. His eyes were grey, crinkle-cut with laughter lines around the corners, belying his supposedly doer image. He sat at a respectful distance and gently asked about the attack. How was she feeling? Was she injured? What could he do to help? He was warm and compassionate, genuine concern in his voice and eyes. He listened attentively as she recounted the struggle with the black-clad foe. The stress of the day suddenly got to her and she found herself monologuing, a torrent of words pouring out of her. How scared had she been, the single-minded aggression of the attacker, his strength and skill, her rescuers, her poor rescuers, how sorry she was. Could she have done more? Her anger at who could have sent such an assassin, how wrong it was to murder a man in cold blood, unconscious and defenceless. She was shaking, her voice breaking, her chest felt so tight, she couldn't breathe, the room swam. He put his arms around her and gave her a hug. He said nothing, just held her. Minutes passed, the room, silent except for her gasping sobs. Bit by bit, she regained control. The outpouring of her emotions slowed. She filled her lungs. Calm returned. He poured her another cup of tea. She asked after the fate of the two Campbells that had saved her life for their timely, if unfortunate, intervention. The one who had been struck in the eye had died instantaneously, the thrust going deep into his brain. His colleague had been saved, despite the loss of blood, but was unlikely to ever dance the Gila Callum again. After sharing their mutual amazement at the fortuitous timing of Niles' return to consciousness and speculating over the nature of what had been in the syringe, McCallum Moore asked if she felt strong enough to accompany him to the morgue to try and identify the assassin. Nodding, she took a final mouthful of her tea before rising shakily to her feet. McCallum Moore held out his arms to support her and she graciously accepted his help. Despite herself, she was warming to him. She didn't know whether it was the stress of the situation or the empathy he had shown. But was it just that? Or was it because the reality of the man was so different from the myth? Chapter 40 Parting Gillespie woke slowly, drifting in and out of sleep. 
The warmth and comfort of the bed was all enveloping and seductive. His conscious mind was reluctant to surface. Finally, he opened his eyes and spent several minutes staring at the Artex ceiling, exploring the galaxies contained in its walls before he summoned the energy to rise. The room was small and tucked under the eaves of Don MacArthur's cottage. He had to crouch until he got into the middle of the room to avoid banging his head. Popping the blind on the window, he rubbed the stubble on his face and looked for a while at the rain lashing the glen outside. Opening the bedroom door, he went in search of a bathroom. He was dying for a shit, a shower and a shave in that order. He walked past a semi-open door that must be where Nin and Charlie were staying, judging by the full ball snoring. Later, as he dressed, he went over his clothes carefully to check for damage. They'd held up remarkably well considering their escapades. He felt somewhat revived as he belted the kilt around his midriff and pulled on his black combat jacket. The clothes, which had seemed so alien only a few days ago, were already becoming well-worn friends, part of him and his story. Feeling ready to face the world, he picked up his two-handed sword and turned it over in his hands. He pulled it half out of its scabbard, mostly to admire the running wolf on the blade, and to run his thumb over its edge to reassure himself of its razor-sharp threat, but also to ensure it wasn't wet. The last thing he wanted was to ruin it with rust marks when he'd only had it a few days. He dreaded to think what Fiona or Mara would do to him if he allowed that to happen. Satisfied all was well, he pushed it back into the carbon fibre scabbard with a reassuring snick and headed downstairs in search of something to eat. He was sat at the kitchen table, looking out of the plate glass window when Don's clapped old cat puffed into sight and ground to a halt outside the front door. Don's cheeks were flushed. It had clearly been a long lunch. Swaying slightly as he leaned round to scoop up his fiddle, Don meandered his way across the yard and into the house. Having joined Gillespie in the kitchen, Don eyed the big brown teapot that was steaming with a fresh brew and poured himself a cup, heaping three teaspoons of sugar into it for good measure and a hefty slug of milk. With his body anchored to a chair, he visibly relaxed and in between humming some indeterminate tunes, asked Gillespie about his perspective on everything that had been happening. After ten minutes of chatting, Don looked at his watch and asked, Where's that lazy bastard cousin of mine? It's nearly three o'clock in the afternoon and he's still lying abed. I'd better oust him out. Rather you than me, said Gillespie. You can sleep through pretty much anything as far as I can see. Oh, well, let's see if yon bastard likes the sound of my pipes. I didn't know you played the pipes too. Ach, well, strictly speaking, I don't. But I do have a set hereabouts that I won in a game of cards, and I find they work wonders in this kind of situation. Don disappeared upstairs. His arrival at Nin and Charlie's bedroom was heralded by the most god-awful ear-splitting wail, two heavy thumps, various shouts and curses, and finally silence. Don returned to the kitchen with a smile on his face. He put the mothy-looking pipes on the table and poured himself another cup of tea. Aye, that's done it. They'll be along in a moment. Sure enough, Charlie and Nin arrived shortly thereafter in various states of undress, pulling on garments and looking grumpy. Charlie's pale as milk body had been coloured in with a palette of livid bruises. They looked pretty uncomfortable, not that he showed it. Nin was, as usual, busy spiking his hair in between reaching for the tea and checking what food was on offer. Once relative peace had been achieved around the table, with loaded plates and steaming mugs, Don began to tell them about what he'd found out at the Grigorach's Lament. So, I walked in there and gets talking to a bunch of Campbell reprobates, nice lads for the most part. They'd just come off a night tour, sweeping the Corrilo 
between Ben Louis and Ben Os, all the way along the Connanesh to Tindrum, thinking that used bastards had gone that way round. I can tell you they weren't best pleased when they didn't find nothing for all their yomping. I expect that Yon would have a fair few more bruises to add to that fine collection, he nodded at Charlie, if they'd ever laid their hands on you. Charlie rubbed his side, as if vicariously experiencing their blows and kicks. They were heading back to Inverary with empty hands, and I don't think they're going to come along my glen for now. But who's to ken what will happen when McCallum Moore learns that his trap's been slipped? Mind you, maybe they don't give too much of a rat's ass about you anyway. After all, they have everything else they wanted. So, do we stick with the plan? asked Charlie through a mouthful of hot buttered toast. Well, I don't have a better idea, and it sounds like staying anywhere near here for the time being is going to be difficult. I still don't have any signal on my phone. They can't have reactivated the clan network. How about you? Nina asked, turning to Gillespie. I have signal as I'm roaming here on crooken.net, but I don't have any messages. Not that I imagine anyone would be really trying to reach me. Should I try calling Bridged Oyin? Gillespie asked, balancing the phone in his hand, finger poised over the screen. No, came the simultaneous cry from both Nin and Charlie. They'll be monitoring all calls to the clan network, attempted or connected. They pick up your number, they might track you through the chip in your phone. No, it's better that we stay dark for as long as possible. When we get to Kendrocket, we can try through the Farkasen network. They're bound to have someone who can help. Gillespie swiped open his phone anyway and saw that he had one unopened message. From Kirsty. Competing thoughts raced through his mind, each tumbling over the other in their haste. How could Kirsty be messaging him? And what did it say? Where was she? Was she okay? He flicked it open. All it said was, Username, Kirsty McNuchton at blacktower.net. Password, Campbell's our cunts. Presumably those were the administrator access codes that she'd sent him from the hillside last night. There was also a picture file attached with the title, Follow the Rat to the Back Door. He clicked on the file. It was a picture showing an old photograph of a shinty team standing on a crowded pitch, all knobbly knees and bad haircuts surrounded by a crowd of people. Slightly mystified, he closed the file and returned the phone to his pocket. Don put down his cup and addressed Nin in his apologetic voice. Aye, aye, well, you'd better move on from here right enough. With the greatest respect to our honourable shared lineage, I can't be caught helping fugitives from McCallan Moor, not seeing as how I'm living here in his backyard. Fair enough, said Nin, and thank you for your open door. We were in a pretty dark condition when we arrived, and the warmth of your hospitality has been much appreciated. We'll pack our things and get on the move. If we leave soon, we should be able to get as far as the edge of Rannock Moor before dark. We can see how far we can get skirting round it, but at some point we need to get north of the tunnel. Aye, well, you'd be wise to give the black wood a wide berth. It sounds almost more dangerous than the moor itself these days, added Don. As for where all the Grigorach are hiding, it's hard to say. They're elusive buggers and tend to shift about. They gathered their gear, thanking Don for the thermos flask of tea that he pushed on them as they left the door. As they stowed the supplies in the various cubby holes and compartments around the cat's interior, Nin peered through the steering wheel at the fuel gauge. Well, it's not going to get us to Kindrocket, that's for sure, but it may get us to Pitlochry or somewhere we can fill up, away from all these Campbells. Anyway, there's no helping it. Don stood on the front step watching as they made their preparations. After a few minutes, Gillespie realised that his eyes were following him around and seemed to be drawn to the sword on his back. Seeing that his interest had been registered, Don asked, Was that Malk McNachton's sword you have there? How did you come by it? 
to kill him for it. My God, no! Gillespie was horrified at the thought. I was given it by his widow. Ah, oh, well, that was quite the gift. That's a passor blade, you know. We've been using their steel for near on a thousand years. Germans know steel, and the wolf of passor knows it best. Do you know how to use it? Or are you just hoping that your opponent's going to run away as soon as you pull it out of the scabbard? To be honest, I haven't a clue. I stopped fencing with a claymore once I'd done my GCSE, and I never did any studying with a weapon like this. I'm only really carrying it to try and blend in. Aye, well, that's the first I've heard of any cunt blending in. We're a two-hander, right enough. Here, give it to us, and I'll show you. As Nin and Charlie were finishing sorting out the vehicle, Gillespie pulled the sword from its scabbard and handed it to Don. As Don took it in his hands, he seemed to grow six inches taller and ten years younger. He flourished the blade, feeling its weight and balance, nodding approvingly. He cut a devastating figure of eight in the air, the huge blade a mesmeric blur. It seemed to encompass all points of attack simultaneously. Since you don't know what the fuck you're doing, I suggest you start with a low guard. This Don held the saw with a pommel just in front of his crotch, with the blade pointing up and across his body towards Gillespie's right eye. That way you can parry, poke or compass either way into a cut. If you want to show them that you know your moves, then bring the pommel up to your right shoulder with the blade behind you. That gives you tremendous cut potential in riposte, and it hides your reach, makes them bastards wary, as they should be. He smoothly moves the blade from the first to the second guard, dramatically changing the potential approach for an attacker. And with that, he handed the blade back to Gillespie, who clumsily tried to recreate Don's elegant moves. Remember, that's a slashing weapon. Just hack the fuck out of your opponent. Don't try and be too clever. Just hack, right? And be a ferocious cunt, because your enemy may well just drop dead of a heart attack. Most folk these days never get to fight one, so maybe they just piss themselves and run away. I think that was always Big Mark's strategy. I'll miss that bastard too, right enough. Nin came over to watch the impromptu lesson. Grinning, he said to Gillespie, you should come back when things have calmed down. Take some proper lessons from Don. He was once the Gallic and world champion at two-handed. Aye, but that was long ago, Don laughed, and there weren't too many cunts as could wield one. Not like a sabre or an epée. Gillespie thanked him, feeling more inadequate than ever. He sheathed the sword and climbed into the front seat, ready for departure. Charlie was starting in the back, and Nin was at the wheel. With a belch and a clatter, the cat pulled out of the drive and started down the track, heading east. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs>